All right. Uh, so how how does he re- how does God relate to us in His saving grace? Um, how uh, another way to say it? How does a Christian come to be a Christian? How does someone come to actually enter the kingdom of God? Right. That's kind of what we're looking at when we look at the doctrines of grace, and so that includes things about we're talking about who God is, what grace is, who we are, um, our what is sin, right? Um, what is the atonement and redemption, person and work of Christ? We're looking at all those different things, but we're specifically asking those questions. So, so in this way, it's, it's a systematic theology question, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. We're, doing. we're thinking about theology, we're pulling stuff, things out of the text to understand what the text says, and then we're putting it in a systematic way that we can understand and answer questions that we have. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, we, some things we have seen already is radical depravity. That is our nature. We are dead in sin. So that, that's who we are. Uh, outside of Christ, before knowing Christ. The cure, the work of the Spirit, is the cure in the sense that he causes people to be born again. We just said we're dead, so we need to be born again, right? So, they, so he brings that, that life-giving work into our hearts, giving us, uh, instead of dead hearts, living hearts, right? Instead of cold hearts that um, only love self and creation, to giving us hearts that actually can and do love God. Um, so we saw that. And uh, the Spirit also specifically does this by, as, he, as we're born again, he gives us an effectual call. In other words, the gospel message is a call to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And what we find is that what makes that effective, because there are a lot of people who hear it and it's not effective, they don't believe. What makes it effective is the Spirit has an effectual calling such that he will apply this work of what we're going to see today, the Son's work of atonement to redeem us. He will apply that definitely to the hearts of his people. So that's what we're looking at today. Summary, I thought this was a good quote. Uh, I give it to you on your handout. Kind of a, a summary and then looking to where we're going today. If we are dead in sin, blind to beauty, so we're blind to the beauty of God in, in Christ Jesus and what he's done, hostile to God, then how can anyone be saved? Our only hope is the sovereign and effectual grace of God that gives us a new heart and awakens Faith. So he does both those things. He gives a new heart, and that awakens faith. Do you have to believe to be saved? Yes. How are you going to believe? He awakens faith in your heart. But where did this grace come from? It came from the cross of Christ, which actually accomplished the salvation of God's people. And so that's what we're looking at today, is, is Christ actually accomplishing the salvation of his people. We're looking at the atonement. What, so our outline basically is going to be, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? So we're going to look at the glory of the atonement, and then we're going to explain and show definite atonement from the scriptures. So we're going to talk about that. In other words, our goal is to be biblical as we understand these things. I hope that's been clear. We've tried to um, really show from the text where we're getting things. Our goal is not to just be, um, when you're systematic, you might think our goal is to have a system and then fit stuff into the system. That's not our goal, right? Now, having systems helps you, but systematic theology, rightly done, is what does the text say? Where do I find answers to these questions? I want to find it in the text, not just in my own way of thinking. Now, God's given us brains to think. We ought to be logical and rational, but we also recognize our minds are fallen. So that even has to, has to be submitted to the word of God, and that's our goal. And so we're thankful. I mean, we're in a church where we can, we can um, interact on even issues like this where people may have slightly different views of how it gets worked out because we know the scripture is where we ultimately are going to look. Right, so so that it's not just a uh, an emotional battle over things. I'm not saying there aren't emotions involved, but our goal is we we ultimately come back and say we want our emotions to line up with what God says, even if we still disagree in the end. We're still at least going back to the same place, and that and that allows you to actually make some sort of progress on different things when you talk about things instead of just 
arguing in circles about stuff. So that's what we're going to look at, and we're going to look at the scripture. Um, one thing I did want to point out or, or mention, uh, we have not had a lot of time for questions. I don't think we've had any time for questions, really. Um, we do want to answer questions. Uh, part, part of this has been somewhat intentional. We really want to lay out a presentation of this before you ask questions, right? Um, because in some degree, we may answer those questions as we go along. Uh, in another degree, it may just be helpful for you to hear the whole thing and think about it and then ask questions. Um, so we do want to answer questions. So right now, the we're, our plan is to have some time. At some point, it could be an entire session if we have enough questions. It could just be part of a session. It could be part of a couple sessions. I don't know how we're going to do it yet, but be able to answer questions. Uh, the way you will get the clearest answers is if you send us those questions ahead of time. So if you actually want answers and you don't want to just uh, debate, but you want to answer, um, it'd be helpful if you would send those to us ahead of time so we can think about them and we can search the scriptures, right? That's our goal. Um, I, I mean, I, it's not like I don't know anything in the scriptures, but there's a lot of things that I might overlook if I just have to answer on the spot. So, um, so that would be helpful. And that would also tell us if we need to devote a whole session to it, right? So if, if there's like 20 people in here that have questions, and only one of you submits a question, my assumption is we only need to spend five minutes at the beginning of a session answering questions. I'm going to answer that one question right? It would be helpful if, if we know how many people have questions. So email those to Ben at GCOT or Doug at GCOT, um, or you can just catch us anytime you see us around and just say, hey, I want to mention this. It may be helpful if you write it down, because you may say it right before we go do something, and then it may be gone after that. But if you write it down, that would be helpful. Okay, so let's look at what we find in redemption or uh, atonement today. What did Christ accomplish by his perfect life and death on the cross, and resurrection, which is to say the atonement. Uh, I'll just remember our condition, right? We, we have seen our condition already, and um, it's not pretty, apart from Christ, right? We are uh, guilty in sin. So I'm, I'm not going to look up all these passages. I am going to look at um, Roman, or sorry, Ephesians 2 in just a minute. If you want to turn there, you can. Um, I'm just going to try to summarize it using Ephesians 2. But we've already seen we are guilty of sin. We are under God's wrath we are enslaved to sin. We are hostile towards God and therefore not even able to please God, not because we don't want to. We're hostile towards him. Um, and we are dead in sin. So we are unfeeling, unable to feel, right? It's, it's um, there, there is a, a, a deadness that makes us unable to feel and believe. So a summary passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, just as a reminder. So our condition, right? You were dead. This was, he's talking to Christians here, but he's saying this, was, this is who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, does being dead mean that we didn't feel anything or didn't want anything? We just were like, really like, no, we, we're alive. But are we alive towards God? No. Our living, or you might say our uh, walking, right, is doing what? It's following the course of the world. So we're alive to the world. And in this case, world means everything that's resisting God. It doesn't just mean like his creation, pristine condition, something like that, right? Uh, so the world. Second, the prince of the power of the air. I think that's referring to uh, Satan, demonic forces. Number three, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I think that refers to our flesh, right? The world, the devil, the flesh. Um, so we're very much alive towards those things, and we, and we see that in the sense that we were um, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we are, um, we're very much wanting things, we just don't want God, right? We, we want what our flesh wants. We want to be king. We want to do it our way, right? I mean, that whole song, right? I did it my way. 
That's what we, that's what we want apart from God. And what, what's the uh, result? So you are dead and you're by nature what? Children of wrath. God's wrath is hanging out over us. So, so why do we point this out? We point this out because the atonement needs to deal with this. Or at least that's what the, the, the plan of God is, is to deal with this issue. Right? That we are, we are dead and we are under God's wrath. Okay, so we get to the atonement. You can turn, uh, well, you don't have to turn Romans 3. You have it up here, but if you want to turn to Romans 3, track along, you can. Uh, so what does Jesus do in the atonement? Well, he rescues us from all these different things we've seen. On your handout, I kind of give you a chart so that if you want to go look up those verses later, we're not going to go through all these verses, but you might find it helpful. Romans 3, 23 through 25, we see um, what happens here. All have sinned, right? So we've already seen that. That's our condition. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in our sin, this is such a big deal to God um, because it is a repudiation it is a spitting in the face of his glory. That's what it means when it says fallen short of the glory of God. We, we are, have rejected God's glory and sought glory of other things. So that, that's our problem again. And what do we need? Well, we need salvation, right? Um, the word uh, justified, you guys see the word justified, right? Justified, that is to be declared right or righteous. And that's what we need. So, so in the Bible, you have the word uh, justice. So is God just? Yes. You also have words like righteousness. Both those words are the same root word. You don't see that in the English, but they are the same root word. Uh, okay, so, so basically we're talking about the same idea when we talk about justice and righteousness. I mean, there's slightly different nuances, right? But, but what I'm saying is the issue is the same. Rightness before God. Rightness according to God. Same thing as justice, right? If, if, if you do something wrong and there's no... Um, justice, that's a problem, right? It hasn't dealt with, there has not been a rightness there. There's been a wrongness done. There's been an injustice done. So, so God is going to have to punish, which is, um, which is why, I mean, you see down here where it says, uh, um, down here later on, because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So the whole Old Testament, you have these sacrifices being made, right? And that, that's a form of atonement in one sense, Right? But it, it was not ultimately paying for those sins. And you also have the issue of God is causing the sun to shine, rain to fall, crops to grow, families to be blessed. All these good gifts towards people who have completely stepped on his righteousness and his glory. So the question, so, so why do we need the atonement? Because, well, is God's glory really, is God really number one in the universe such that if he was not, if he abdicated his throne, that would be untruthful, but it would also be the end of everything else. You see what I'm saying? If God is not at the center of it, then there's no such thing as goodness, justice, rightness, joy. There's nothing. Okay, so he had passed over these things, so, so, but he can't pass over it indefinitely. So the atonement is necessary to pour out the wrath of God so that God can be both just and the justifier. Right? Righteousness, justice. Now, now how's he going to do that? Well, we have uh, redemption. It's, it's, uh, it's grace. It's a gift. It's redemption, which is buying back out of enslavement. We talked about enslavement earlier, right? We're enslaved. It's a buying out of our enslavement. Um, 
And what is, how does this redemption come to us? It's in Christ Jesus. Right? Christ being the Messiah, the sent one, the one that was promised throughout the whole Old Testament. All those sacrifices were pointing towards him. So, so he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus is his name. And we know, if we look at the other passages, that this is, in fact, the Son of God taking on human flesh. That he might live among us. Um, and, and so what is the purpose in all this? What, what is God doing in all this? Well, he's putting him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Okay, so propitiation, what does that mean? It means a satisfaction of wrath. It, it is the way we get God's mercy and grace is his wrath. Remember, we're children of wrath. We saw that in Ephesians 2. Wrath has to be satisfied, poured out. And it's not because it's just like when I, you know, if I fly off the handle and it's just for selfish, silly reasons and you have to placate my wrath. God's wrath is 100% justified, 100% right. 100% accurate in the way he sees things and assesses things, right? So, so his wrath is such that if it's not satisfied, he would be unjust. He would not be God. There could be no such thing as goodness. There'd be no such thing as any hope of eternal life or joy for any of us. Everything would be darkness and, and hopelessness, right? So what he does is he propitiates, he puts forth his son, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction of his wrath by his blood, which is referring to what? The cross, the atonement, the pouring out of his life. And by the way, I mean, when we talk about the atonement, it means more than just the blood being shed. It means his entire righteous life because he had to perfectly obey the law and then die in our place. And, uh, and so, so we're going to see that he died in our place in just a minute when I summarize this. But, um, but you see, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the atonement. This is why it's so important. Um, and here's, here's the beautiful thing. If you look at Romans 8, he goes through all of this, um, this, these chapters about the gospel, what, what God was doing in the atonement. And he comes to this and he says, therefore. Okay, so what is he about to tell us? He's going to say, look, I've given you all this stuff that God has done. I want to tell you what this means. Therefore, there is now what? A little bit, some, no condemnation. Who? For those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Um, now, it's interesting, and this is, this is why I think sometimes we don't, we don't grasp how amazing the work of the atonement is. And I think it's because we, we I mean, for me, my own heart, I think sometimes it's, I, think, I think too little of sin. I think it's not as much of a big deal, right? I mean, come on, everybody messes up. Surely God can't be that upset about it. No, he's righteous. I mean, I don't think we, so we don't understand our own sin and we don't understand God's holiness. I think that's really our issue. And I, and I think, I think um, under the inspiration of the Spirit, right, Paul is writing this, and I think God, God is communicating this to his people because he wants to give us... Um, well, first of all, he wants us to believe what's true, but what's true here brings us comfort too. But it's so unbelievable when you really think, of, when you go through all those other chapters of Romans and you see God's holiness and you see that no one is seeking after God, Romans chapter three, we are dead, right? We are, we are violators of his law um, and he sends his son to die for us. You get to the point where you say, ah, really? I mean, am my, me, sinful me? Therefore, so in light of all I've said, there's no condemnation. Four. What do, you do, what do you do after a four? After the word four, you give another proof or reason. So you have seven chapters of proof and reason of what God has done in the atonement. 
his great work of grace in saving a people for himself. Then he comes to this climactic statement. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then he wants to make sure that if those seven weren't enough, he's going to now turn around and give you again four This is true because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Here's my point. It's like you have this one huge, amazing truth like a tower. And we look at it and we think, there's no way. I mean, that thing's going to fall over. But God has, has given us all this support on one side, the first seven chapters of Romans. And now he makes the statement and then he's going to ground it again on the other side. I think the, the reason is not because it, it, it's not going to, I mean, it's true. He could, he could have just said there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's still true. So why, why go through all this therefore and for stuff? I think it's so that we believe it, right? When you are struggling, when, when you do get hit by the significance of your sin and the seriousness of the holy God of the universe, and you think, how can you forgive me? You come and you read verses like this, right? So the atonement is, incredible. And we ought not forget that. So part of the reason in this lesson, we're going to talk about the, the extent of the atonement, but, but really, I mean, we need to grasp the greatness of what God has done for us and the grace that he shows through the atonement of Christ. We are completely undeserving. In fact, what we deserve is hell, right? We can't, you can't say God is, is not fair in atoning for the sins of some people. Fairness, I mean, fairness means all of us go to hell, you can say he's gracious. You can say he's merciful, meaning undeserved kindness. That's true. It is undeserved, but he chose to show it. So anyway, so that's, hopefully that encourages you. Um, and, uh, and just to be clear here, even here we're still talking about the atonement. I didn't point this out, but um, um, sending his son, his own son, the likeness of human flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. Um, so again, I think we see that he's, he's, it's the atonement that gets that for us. Okay. Um, so now, let me give you a summary real quick of the atonement. And so th- this, is the, this is how it's been described that I think is helpful in reminding us some of the key points. It's referred to as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning penalty. He takes the penalty. There's, there's a punishment that, we, that needs to be absorbed, and he takes it. There is the fact that he's not being punished for his sin. He had no sin. It's substitutionary meaning he's standing in the place of us, right? And we see that in places like Isaiah 53. He bore our sins, right? He's the one who's going to bear it. Is it his sins? No, it's our sins. He bore our sins in his own body. Language like that. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it was for our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Did he have sin? No. But he, he becomes sin in the sense that sin rests on him. My sin rests on him. He's my substitute, right? The whole Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to this, a substitute. These animals were substituting. Now, they were temporary. They were pictures. They weren't the fullness. They weren't the reality. They were types of what Christ would be. So um, there's a penalty. There's substitution. The word atonement, originally in the English, the word atonement meant the quality of being at one with. Later, it came to refer to human reunion with God through Christ. The Hebrew and Greek terms designate the manner in which Christ puts the sinner in the right relationship with God. So through him being our substitute, absorbing the penalty, we are made and reestablished, we are established in a right relationship with God. So that he can be both just, he's not overlooking sin, and the justifier, 
declaring that we are actually righteous before his court. And in fact, he does more than that. He goes from being a uh, judge, he gets off the bench and becomes the adopted father. I mean, that's incredible. It's not like he just, like, is a judge that, you know, you're not guilty, and then the judge doesn't ever see you again, maybe not, I mean, it doesn't really matter. He goes and becomes father, right? And doesn't become father, but he, you know what I'm saying, he adopts you into his family. So we ought to take time to be humbled over this. Uh, summary definition, the atonement is the work of God in Christ on the cross, whereby he canceled the debt of our sin, appeased his holy wrath against us, and won for us all, that word all there is key, all the benefits of salvation. So we ought to take time to be humbled by this, to think that the Father has planned this redemption, the Son has come and accomplished it, the Spirit applies the work to his people. We have the God the Father, Son, and Spirit all engaged in applying and winning and then applying all the benefits of salvation to us. Philip Bliss has a wonderful hymn called Hallelujah, What a Savior that we sing sometimes. He says this, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So, one application is, when we take communion today, brothers and sisters, think about what Christ has done. Really think about it. it I mean, it's easy to start thinking about what you're going to do for lunch. I mean, I I've done that. I'm, you're not, I'm not alone in that. I'm not condemning you. But think about what Christ has done as we partake in communion. Think about what it means that his blood was poured out and his body was nailed to a tree. The righteous son of God. Who should have been nailed to that tree? Me. And I still if I hung on that tree, would not have been able to pay the infinite debt that I owed to God. That's why hell is infinite. Because I have to forever continue paying for my sin if I don't have the Redeemer, if I don't have atonement that God initiates and accomplishes. So this is pretty amazing. I hope it encourages you. Um, now we need to talk about unlimited versus definite atonement. Um, was the atonement intended by God only to offer salvation to all. Um, and, I, and that may sound weird saying only to offer salvation to all. I'm going to explain why that's actually a limiting thing in just a minute. Um, or to also, so, so not only that, but then also guarantee the salvation of a definite set of people. Okay? So th that's, that's the question we're trying to answer here. Th this is the difference between the, um, the Reformed and Arminian view, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're getting at here. Now, listen, this, I mean, this is a complex topic. Um, when I was studying for this, I was like, man, I, I probably need a month to get ready to do this. I didn't have a month, so here we are. Um, but I think we can boil it down to one issue that will at least help us see that definite atonement is biblical. That is the, I think that is the biblical view by looking at this one issue. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to explain every text that you have a question about related to the extent of the atonement today. There are complicated texts um, and that could be part of your questions, and I'll let, I'll let Doug answer those, right? You can ask those. Um, but here's areas of agreement. So, so I just want to make this clear right up front. Uh, if you are a biblical Christian, I believe you hold these three things, regardless of where you stand on um, doctrines of grace issues 
if you understand it exactly the way we've been describing things or not. And so, and, and I think also it's true if you think, well, you know, these people, we'll call them Calvinists, these people, they, um, they must believe X, Y, and Z. I, we just want to clarify a couple things so that we, we recognize there are things that we are all in agreement on that are key, okay? Number one is universalism is not biblical. Nobody on either side who is a biblical Christian is arguing that because Jesus died, everybody will be saved, period, whether they repent and believe or not. Now, there are people who say that and they take the name of Christian, but that is not the Christian biblical view. Arminians, well, because sometimes this is the thing people say, well, you know, if you're, if you're an Arminian, you have to embrace universalism. Well, now, you might say it could slide that direction more easily. You might say that, but you can't say that that's, I mean, they, they go to great lengths to interpret those all passages, right, the whole world passages, to also, just like people on the other side, Calvinists or whatever you want to call them do, to, to say, look, we're not talking, this is clearly not everybody is saved regardless of their relationship of faith to Jesus, right? So let's get that clear. Number two, and this is maybe an accusation that gets made more against the doctrines of grace side of things, a free offer, so they say you, you, you're not giving a free offer, but both sides do agree, a free offer to believe on the Lord Jesus for salvation must be made in evangelism. He will not turn away any that come to Jesus in repentance and faith. I mean, that's biblical. That's biblical language. He's not going to turn away anybody that comes in faith and repentance, right? So we make a free offer. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's biblical language. And we affirm that. Right? So it won't do to, for, for someone who's maybe on the more Arminian persuasion to say, well, this other side, you know, they can't be right because they can't make a free offer. But, well, now it may, it may lead to that. I mean, so, some people might slide into that. But, but biblical Christians affirm that the Bible says, whoever believes will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Christ's death has infinite value since he is God to pay for the penalty of all people. So we're not talking about saying, well, you know, Jesus, he just, he could only pay for so many because, you know, he just didn't have enough righteousness stored up to pay for everybody. Or he didn't have enough value to be able to make that payment. He's infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy. Okay, so the question is, was the atonement intended by God for a definite set of people or um, in some sense, you'd say no one in particular? In other, in other words, um, did God have in view an actual redemption of a specific people from all that would destroy them, including their unbelief? And that becomes the issue, including their unbelief. Or did he merely intend to create an opportunity for salvation for all, but not to guarantee that anyone would be saved because they, these individuals, must create the faith they need to receive redemption? The first view, the doctrines of grace view, is that his dying, his atoning work, also purchased their faith and paid for their unbelief in a way that was sure. They would believe. There was a specific group that he's, he's I'm going to atone for their sins in a way that they will be mine. There is no question about it. I'm coming for them in a special saving way. The second view says less than that. It says he died to make it possible some might believe, but that belief is not guaranteed. Something else besides what was accomplished in the atonement has to explain why they are redeemed. Namely, that they decided to believe. They made a belief within their own hearts. Right? You see what I'm saying? Because if you're saying that he bought the belief in a sure way, such that they would believe, you don't have, that. that's not the Arminian view anymore. 
you have moved over to the doctrines of grace view at that point. Um, I think this will make a little more sense as we keep going through here. In some ways, it's kind of akin to the, the issue of the, the effectual call. Um, there's a call to all people in general. That's true. That's very clear in the Bible. But is there something more than that? Such that we also see there's an effectual call that he calls a particular people in such a way that they must, because they all of a sudden want to, where they could not have made themselves want to before, come to the Lord Jesus. So I think it's similar to that. Um, so suppose it maybe one more, one more way, just because it's a little complicated, but do I believe that Christ decisively secured for me the, uh, the call, the effectual call, and the life, and the faith, and the repentance that I now have? Or do I contribute these things from myself so that what he died to achieve can then count for me? So I want to show you some verses that I think show that he came at least, at least one thing he did in the atonement, I think there's more, but one thing he did was there was a definite people that he was going to save by his death. It wasn't just a, I'm dying for the world. Now, I will affirm that he actually, he does die for the world too. I think that's true. Okay, that, that's really not the issue. So I, I think if I can show you that from scripture, then we still have other texts that are complicated and we have to work out. But I think the main issue is settled at that point. It is a definite atonement if we can show that he came within view of saving a definite group of people. Okay? Now, stick with me. I know this is complicated. Um, Doug gave me a book that was like this big, just on the doctrine of atonement this week. And that's why I was like, I, there's no way I can go through this whole book, right? Um, so, we're, but I, well, I've, tr I've tried to boil it down to what I think is the main issue, okay? So, let's look at John 10. John 10. Um... John 10, verse 16. No, no, sorry. Verse 14 and 15. So, this is what Jesus says here. I am the good shepherd. So, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at several verses to show definite atonement in Scripture. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So, this is, that's atonement, Right? Right? Okay, that part's not complicated, right? That's, that's atonement. Okay. Lays down his life for the sheep. Who? Who are the sheep? Who is that group? Um, I think the, the first, that, 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 that kind of unlimited atonement position would have to say, what it's saying here is, it's, it's everybody. Or at least it's, it's his sheep, but there's no guarantee as to who's going to be um, in those sheep group. It's just whoever decides to believe will then become part of the sheep and thus be saved. Okay, so who is he talking about? Well, the question is, is, is he dealing with a particular group of people? Is he aiming at saving a particular group? Look at verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So who's he referring to there? I think he's referring to the Gentiles. He's talking to Jewish people here, and he's saying, there are other sheep among the Gentiles. They're going to be my sheep out of the Gentiles. And notice what he says. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. Who is making these people sheep? Jesus is saying, I must get them. I take that to mean there's a particular group among these Gentiles that he is going after in his atoning work. 
So there will be one flock and one shepherd. They will listen to my voice. I think that's another kind of guarantee type language. So Jesus is guaranteeing this. Um, it sounds like a definite ob objective that he has when he lays down his life. There is a group of sheep. Now, to bear this out, because you still might be wondering, well, but maybe maybe these sheep, what he means is he, he knows that they're going to choose on their own to believe, and then he's going he's gonna to say, okay, well, I'm going to count you as my sheep. We'll keep looking down. Verses 22 and following. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, so the one God sent, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Uh, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So what he's saying is, look, um, they're saying that they're not believing. He's already told them who he is. He's done miraculous works to prove who he is. They're not believing. You see that, right? They're not believing. Okay. Um, why are they not believing? Why are they not believing? Look down at verse 26, right? But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. Because is a logical connection. Here is the reason you're not believing. Because you're not among my sheep. You, you see what's going on here? I mean, he doesn't say you're not among my sheep because you've chosen not to believe. Although I think there's some truth to that. But what's the foundational reason is because they're not believing because they're not among his sheep. So grammar is key here. The word because tells us the reason is they are not among a sheep. That is why they are not believing. So I take this to mean there's a particular group among the Gentiles and even Jews that Jesus is saying, my, when I'm the good shepherd, I'm laying down my life for this group here to make them my sheep. It will definitely happen. This definite group is going to be my sheep, which entails buying everything, including their belief, I think. Okay, quick question. Yeah. Does that mean in that group, there was none of them would come to be in the sheep group eventually? Oh, among, among this group right here? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I haven't thought that through. Yeah. Like you're talking about the people he's directly talking to in that sentence. Yeah. I mean, history does bear out that uh, we don't see a lot of the Jewish leaders converted, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not, I, mean, I don't know who's in this group. So it's a good question. It is good. Yeah. Okay. One more thing I want you to see here is that I think also points us in this direction. Look at verses 28 and following. I give them, so uh, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Okay, what we see here I think is... Um, a, a unified group between in the, within the Trinity, right? So who um, who rescues these sheep? Who who goes after them? I, that's Jesus, right? So I'm going to give them eternal life. My Father. So we have the Son and the Father, and the Father is the one who what has given them 
to Christ. So again, I think you're seeing a definite group here. I think it's a, a pointing to that. Even if it's not maybe a slam dunk there, it's still pointing to that. He's going to give them a particular group. So um, one, one other argument here, I think, from this text is, and, and if we were to add to this other passages, um, like Titus 3, it's uh, the washing of the regeneration of the Spirit that gives life. Um, there's a couple other passages I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's a few other passages that deal with the Spirit. Uh, John 3, Ephesians 1, we see... In redemption, there's this unity in the Trinity, that, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working with a unified goal. Right? So if, if we take this, this work of Jesus to, to apply to everybody in general, and then the Spirit only regenerates a smaller group than that, namely those who decide they're going to believe. In other words, Jesus doesn't come with the idea of, I'm going to save this group over here, and the Spirit says, I'm regenerating this group over here right? And if we were to back it up, what we'll see next week, the Father had actually said, I'm going to elect this group here. We have to somehow start disconnecting some of that work. It becomes Jesus came and died for the whole world, and that's it. Nothing more than that. Again, I'm not denying that he came to die for the whole world. He did. But nothing more than that. That's all he did. There was no specific aim at a particular people. And now you have the Spirit saying, yes, but I'm only going to apply it to this particular group of people in a saving way. Now, I don't think that's a slam dunk case, but I do think it kind of points us to we should feel a little bit of, ah, there's, there's, it seems like the Trinity should be unified in what they're doing. This doesn't seem to be that sort of unity, right? If we go the other direction with this. That's all I'm saying. All right, you guys are doing good. I know this is, this is a complicated thing. Um, Romans 8, look at Romans 8 real quick. Romans 8.32 is pretty key here. So he who did not spare his own son... Right, so this is the, uh, the atonement. He gave him up for us all. Okay, so th- this is this work of atonement for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Now, the passage is, um, who, who is the for us all? Um, well, look at it. I mean, he's going to, this group of all is also promised God's going to graciously give them all things. And what are the all things? Well, if you keep reading, well, if you look back, you see it's justification and glorification. If you look ahead, you see that it is, um, they, they are justified. You see that they uh, have the love of Christ and nothing will separate them from this love, right? So we're talking, what, what, it, what is the all things he's going to give them? It is sure salvation and all the things that attend that right? Everything that goes along with that is secure because he gave his son. So, so you know, you're, you're, you're feeling like, man, does God really love me? All these things. And you just go back to the cross and you say, ah, but he didn't spare his son. And if he didn't spare his son, he will freely give me all these things. He's not going to withhold justification from me. He's not going to withhold the love of Christ from me. I know that because there's a historical fact, Jesus hung on the cross to die for my sin. That's the logic of the passage, right? That's what it's supposed to do. Okay, now we can look more at the who's the all referring to. The logic breaks down in this passage if we start to say, he gave his son for all people, but some of them will not graciously receive all things. Some of these all, he gave them for all people, and we know all people are not going to receive all these things. Well, now the logic doesn't work in this passage. So who's the all? It's got to be the group that is guaranteed to receive all these blessings, right? And another way we know that is, so if we look up from this all, we look back here, who are we talking about up here? Those he justified. 
And if you were to trace that back, you'd see it's those he called. Those he called, or if you trace that back further, it's, it's he predestined them. Trace that back, he foreknew them. Do you, see, do you see how the logic of this passage works? I guess what I'm saying is if you don't have a definite atonement, I don't see how Romans 8.32 works. It doesn't say what it, what it says. You have to make it say something else. Okay. Let's look at Luke 22. I know we're going fast, but let's keep moving. Luke 22.20. 20. New covenant promises. New covenant in my blood, Jesus says. That's what he does in the atonement. He pours out his blood to bring in and to ratify and to guarantee all the promises of the new covenant. Right? Okay. What are some of the promises of the new covenant? We saw this a couple weeks back. Look at Ezekiel. We don't turn there, but Ezekiel 36, 25 and following. There is a, um, he's going to um, make us clean. I will cleanse you. Right? So there's a forgiveness. But what else is there? There is a new heart, a new spirit. He's going to give us, um, he's going to remove the heart of stone, which, which is, again, that's another way, because remember, John 3 points back to this with the new birth. So what is that saying? That's saying you're deadness. You are dead to God. The new covenant promises, I, who, who's the I? God. I will give you a new heart. God's doing it. God will do it. That is the promise of the new covenant. God will do it. And, and you're not going to believe in God without a new heart, because we've already seen you're dead to God right? It's not like you're, you're lying there wounded, calling out for help. You're dead. You can't do anything. So God has to give a new heart, he, and, he, and he does all this. So my point is that in the, in, Jesus' blood assures us of the new covenant. Well, what does the new covenant do? Well, it says, God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to cause you to be born again. So what I take that to mean is, based on all the other stuff, putting it all together, is Jesus comes at least to save a definite group of people, those who will be part of the new covenant, which God has to make them part of that covenant. They can't give themselves a new heart. All right, Romans, or sorry, Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Worshiping the Lamb of God, Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. So we're talking about, um, and by your blood, you ransomed a people, right? So we're talking uh, atonement. And then it says, uh, they were from every tribe and language and people and nation. Um, Okay, it doesn't just say, now again, I'm not saying this isn't true, but this passage doesn't just say, you... By your blood, you ransomed, it doesn't just say people um, in the sense that you made it available to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It says you actually ransomed a people from, a subset of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Do you see how we're getting, it's not just the fact that you, you came as a ransom for the whole world and he just leaves it at that. Again, I, th- I think there's truth to that. But I, I came so that I would redeem by my blood a people subset from, I mean, I don't know how to take that except for it has to be a subset from every tribe. Because again, no one's affirming universalism. I mean, I suppose that's another way you could take it. Everyone's going to be saved. But again, the word from here won't let you do that. Okay. Now. Um, is there a sense in which 
All right, so let me read this one, one statement here, and then I'm going to go on to, to this last question here. Uh, we simply say that in the cross, God had in view the actual redemption of his children. We affirm that when Christ died for these, he did not just create the opportunity for them to be saved themselves, but really purchased for them all that was necessary to get them saved, including the grace of regeneration and the gift of faith. That's what we're saying when we say definite atonement. Um, again, the, the difference is the other view is saying um, it doesn't guarantee this, that there's a group that he came for. It's all we can say is he died for the whole world. So I actually think definite atonement, actually, it says more. It can affirm what the Arminians are affirming in the sense that, yeah, did he come to die for all? Yeah, we have passages that say that. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is still gloriously true. But we say more than that. We say in his death, he came for, he was, he was guaranteeing a particular people were going to be saved. He was going to save his sheep. He was laying down his life for his sheep. He was dying for a group from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what we're saying. So, there is a sense, I think, in which Jesus' atonement is for the whole world. Um, okay. Probably need to wrap it up here. So, I think in, in places like John 3.16, we're seeing that God has a love for the whole world that motivates him to send Jesus. I think that's true. Um, now, and, and this is where I think sometimes the issue becomes, well, well you must be saying that God if he just died in a particular way for a particular people, it must mean that he can't love the whole world. Well, I'm just showing you, I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, I showed you from scripture. I think both those things are in scripture. So I say them both. But also, let me just give you this illustration. We didn't go to Ephesians 5, but that's another passage that says, Jesus died for his bride. Which again, I think that points to a particular group. But here's the point when you think about love. There's a sense in which I can say, as a Christian, I'm called to love all people. Women are a subset of all people. Therefore, I can say, I love all the women of Grace Church. I can say that. But I have a particular love for my wife. We have a particular covenantal love. Does that mean I don't love the other women in this church? No. But there, there's a distinction, and I'm not unloving because of that distinction. And I think that's what we, I think that's, that's what we see. And I think Ephesians 5, it points us in that direction. Okay, no doubt there are complicated things to still work out. I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. Um, so, I don't want to pretend like I've answered every question, but I just want to say, I, I do think, I just, from the passages we looked at, I think you have to say there at least was a plan to save a definite group of people. We can say there's more than that, but there has to at least be that. So, summary, the problem with, I think, the Arminian view is not in what it affirms, but what it denies we agree with the Arminians that Christ died to make salvation possible for all men. We simply believe more than this, namely that Christ died to secure the salvation of the elect. That's a quote from John Piper. So Christian, be encouraged. He died to secure your salvation. Um, he, 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 Christ came like one seeking a bride. His love for you is personal, not generic. There's a lot of encouragement in that. You don't have to wonder if maybe he really didn't want to adopt you into his family. Like maybe you forced it by believing or something. You know, well, I said I, got, I, said I would take anyone that repented and believed. I really didn't want to take you, but I guess I'm going to have to. Right? 
He loved you. He loves you freely without respect to anything praiseworthy within yourself. The fact that you did nothing to earn it does not change his love for you. We, so there's freedom and joy, I think, when we understand the atonement. And, and you know, if, if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you, or you are talking to people that aren't Christians, I encourage them or I encourage you with this. Do you see your guilt before God? Do you see something of, of the awfulness of sin, that it's not just you did a couple bad things, it's that you have trampled on the glory of your maker and the one who sent his son because he so loved the world. He gave his son. Does that grieve you? Does it put the fear of judgment in you? Then you ought to hear this, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. If you are grieved by your sin and you see Jesus as the only savior that can rescue you out of that sin, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the call of scripture. That's what you are commanded to do and that's what you need to do. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't believe in your good works. Don't believe in your ability to reform yourself. Don't make excuses for your sin. Trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. That's the call, right? Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for what you have done for us, for what your son has accomplished, for what your spirit applies. Um, God, I pray you'd help us to revel in a humble but um, really joyful way over what you have done for us. God, that our hearts would be moved towards greater love for you as we think about what you've done for us, God. God, I pray that where we still have questions and, and different texts that we wrestle with, that you would just give understanding and insight into those things. That they would in no way, that our interpretations would, would never go astray in a way that would cause us to diminish your glory and your goodness and your power in saving sinners. But that we always would make much of you and glorify you. God, give us a love for one another. Even as we see maybe certain things differently, would we have the same love of your spirit poured out in us? Will we have the same um, worship of our Savior? Will we have the same uh, humility and awe before your great and mighty work of saving us sinners? We pray as we observe communion that our hearts would be glad and thankful and humble and that you would be honored. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.